Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and today I will be speaking with Dr. Eve Sove. Dr. Sove uh, is a recent retiree. Uh, he was an associate professor in the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at the University of Alberta. Dr. Sove, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Sean. It's very good talking with you. Thank you. Um, this is uh, we've spoken in the past, um, actually, in, a, in another podcast about uh, I think it was about five years ago. So I'm happy to have you back and um, happy to be here. Happy to yeah. be here. Thank you. Yeah, well, I enjoyed that conversation then, but I'm going to try and grill you with a lot of different questions this time, um, and a lot of these are coming from from personal interest, um, things that I don't understand, and things I also hear um, people bring up a lot. So I think we can have a lot of fun with this. Um, but I was hoping we can, you know, kick it off just talking a little bit about your journey. Now that you're you're recently retired, uh, we just talk a little bit about your academic journey and maybe touch on how you got into the realm of vision and specifically vision and aging. Sure, sure. I started with a bachelor in biochemistry at Montreal University, and um, there was one class. Uh, about neurochemistry that really interested me. And I said, I want to do a master there. So I did the master in neuroscience. And then after that, I got an interest in growing nerves. And uh, I uh, heard a talk by Albert Aguayo, who was a very, very important neuroscientist in the 80s and 90s in Canada. He uh, funded the network of excellence in neuroscience. So um, I approached him and he said that the actual slide that got me interested wasn't from him, but was from Michael Raspinski. He says, go see him, but he doesn't take any PhD student, just just so you know. Uh, So I went to see Mike Raspinski and I said, I'm very interested in how you're able to take a cytic nerve and replace the optic, optic nerve with that. And not only that, but you put an electrode in the brain uh, of the hamster and you're able to record visual response. The optic nerve has been completely transected and the suture on the stump there, anastomose, is that sciatic nerve. And I say, I want to do that. And he says, well, I don't take any PhD student. I say, I know Dr. Aguayo said so, but can I attend? So I attended the uh, research and the experiment, and uh, Sue Kirstad was a postdoc, and basically she taught me everything and let me do the experiments myself. And at some point, I took a sheet of paper and I gave it to Dr. Rasminski, and I said, this is where you sign. And he says, where? He says, it's just there at the bottom. He said, okay. And he signed, and I was his PhD student. So to make a long story short, there was the visual system, Sean. There was the retina that was stimulated with light, and there were responses in there. And then I was looking for a postdoc. After I finished with that, um, there was this guy in London who was doing really interesting um, therapy in retinitis pigmentosa, which you know, obviously, uh, about RP. And um, he basically was putting cells in their RPE cells in the back of the eye and was able to preserve. So that was a preventative approach. Anyway, um, he needed an electrophysiologist, someone to record response from the brain. I said, well, I'm the guy. 
I can do that. So I did uh, six years uh, of beautiful years in London, UK, where I was recording responses. And there was a postdoc there, um, Jean Naran. She said, I'm going to teach you about the retina. And when you're done with your postdoc, you're going to know the retina inside out. So this is how I got interested in the retina, Sean. Um, before, I was just abusing of it to, to prove that we could grow uh, nerves and, and to replace the optic nerve. But uh, now I was really, really fascinated by that, that multi-layered structure. So that's what I've done, transplants. And uh, it took me to uh, Utah, Salt Lake City after that, where the lab moves from London. And I was doing something called ERG, electroretinogram, recording responses from the retina itself. So I was really sucked in by, by that beautiful organ called the retina. And uh, it was just getting better and better. Dr. Ian McDonald from uh, the University of Alberta, 2005, recruited me uh, to continue working with the electroretinogram and different therapies. And then we moved to Stargardt. And this is where I started studying uh, Stargardt uh, macular degeneration and therapy with uh, preventative with DHA, uh, which is an omega-3. So this is my story. Uh, it's interesting. And, uh, you know, Dr. McDonald is a, is a common uh, or a mutual contact and uh, he's been on the podcast uh, recently and um, he also highly recommended to having you as a guest. So there's a, there's certainly a history there. Um, I have the highest respect yeah. for Dr. McDonald. Uh, the, uh, the honor that he did me um, by headhunting me in the depth of Utah was, was just wonderful. I don't know if you know this, but uh, so I met him back in 2000, 2008 or 2009 uh, when I went to the NEI when he was there um, to participate in the iGene project to yep. get, um, get my uh, mutation sequenced. So or, or determine the mutation in, in my condition. So that's when I met him a number yep. of years ago. So, um, so yeah, was there for, for almost two years. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So you meant, and you mentioned DHA and maybe you come back to that. Um, but I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about the retina, of course, uh, and just retina with age. So, you know, what, what changes as we age uh, in terms of our, um, in terms of the retina in general and, you know, how would you classify, like yep. there's certain changes that would just be normal associated with aging, I would assume, and not necessarily pathologic. And there's others that would be pathologic. So yep. maybe if you could just comment on those a little bit, please. Yeah, with pleasure, Sean. Um, I invite you to a little journey here. Um, people, if they want the uh, people listening to the, this podcast, if they feel comfortable, can close their eyes because we ultimately see with our brain. So we can close our eyes and, and have mental pictures. So if you feel comfortable, close your eyes and we're gonna imagine that light, um, we are light and we are entering the eye. So we enter the eye by the cornea and the cornea is the first structure um, that the light hits. And with age, it gets a bit drier. So you'll see people using sustain or different lubricant um, because of dry eye. And DHA can actually help with that. And uh, we are light. We continue our journey and then we arrive at the lens. And at the lens with age, two things happen. Uh, the lens will become a little bit less flexible. So we can't see near things very well. 
um, without wearing reading glasses. That happens at the age of about 45 years old. Um, that's the lens. And the lens with older ages will become opaque, slightly opaque. So that's cataracts, but it does become opaque anyway, just slightly. And we don't really notice if we don't have cataracts, but it does become more opaque. So that's age. Um, and of course, this is the major reason people go blind is cataracts, but we can reverse this. We can replace the lens with the intraocular lens. So that's good news. These are all good news when it comes to the front of the eye and age and diseases. Most of them are treatable. Now we keep our journey. We got the jello-like structure called the vitreous. And what happens with age with the vitreous is we get more floaters with age. So that is little, little objects that move in your visual field. Uh, I don't know if you are able to see floaters, Sean, uh, with your condition, but um, floaters are increasing with age. And then we move to the retina. And the first layer we see is ganglion cell and their axon. Axons is the arm of a neuron. So a ganglion cell is a neuron and it is the only output to the brain, the only output. And unfortunately with age, there's a little bit less of them. They decrease in number. And then we have bipolar cells that allow the talking between photoreceptors. We're not there yet, but between photoreceptors and ganglion cells, they allow that transmission. So there's a need for bipolar cells to communicate between photoreceptors and um, ganglion cells. So bipolar cells also decrease with age. Uh, especially the one carrying the rod signals. So now we keep moving. We're really going to the back of the eye and we reach the photoreceptors. And uh, that is the most affected by age. Um, the rods for night vision and for non-color information um, die in the mid periphery. So this might be a bit of the reason why people will tend to um, bump into things uh, in, in the dark because that's for movement detection. We'll get back to movement detection later. So the rods die and the cones are preserved, except if you have a disease, but we're not talking about disease. We're talking about normal, healthy aging. And behind the photoreceptors, we're really reaching the end of the retina here. It's not part of it. It's, it nourishes us, is the RPE, retinal pigment epithelial cells. So retinal, pigmented epithelial cells. They are monolayers, a single layer of cells, and they are essential to nourish the photoreceptors. Unfortunately, um, they tend to die. They tend to become dysfunctional. They tend to not nourish the photoreceptors as much. So they are the culprit of why photoreceptors die as well. Um, so that's pretty much with age. I'm going to talk to you, Sean, um, about the catch-22 situation, if that's okay. Of course, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. ahead. So here's our catch-22 situation, is in order to see, we need DHA, and we talked about it. We talked about that omega-3. It's highly fluid. It's mother's nature invention for a antifreeze. So salmon, mackerel, cold fish water, Cold, cold fish, yeah, cold water fish, sorry about that. Cold water fish 
um, have that as a natural antifreeze. So they, have, they are in water sometimes that goes below zero. And so, so they don't freeze, they get DHA. Uh, it's very fluid. So in order for us to see, we use 50% of all the fatty acid as DHA in the photoreceptors to make reactions of transforming light into electrical signals uh, in a very fast manner. And it's all membrane bound events. So cells have membrane and the membrane of photoreceptors is uniquely, uniquely fluid. So 50% of all the fat in there is DHA. The problem is, so we need that to see. The problem is that DHA is the most oxidable, oxidable fatty acid in the living um, kingdom. So it is the most oxidizable. So basically you need it, but it's gonna get oxidized. So you need antioxidant. And as we get older, the oxidative damage, these are free radicals, um, increase, 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 increase. And there's oxidative um, kind of um, damage everywhere in the retina. So exposition to light uh, causes that as well because light can also lead to damage uh, in the outer retina. So that is our situation. This is mother nature um, favorized vision uh, very much, but the, um, the level of oxidation is, is, is very high. And, and the reason is to make matters worse is that photoreceptors are not vascularized. They don't have a single blood vessel. It's like when you take your cell phone, right? You don't wanna have blood vessels and then because the camera <laughs> is going to get a distorted picture with the with the imprint of the whole vascularization. If you get my drift, um, yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah, makes sense. You get all these blood vessels in the way, so you don't want that. Uh, so how do they get their oxygen? They get it through the RPE, which nourish them, and from a capillary bed called the choroid. So this is the highest level of oxygen you will ever encounter in the human body is in the outer retina. So these very, very vulnerable photoreceptors, because they have DHA and it's extremely oxidizable, are exposed, this is CAT22, to the highest level of oxygen in the body because they rely on passive diffusion of oxygen. So in order to make it go there, you need to pump it up very high. So this creates uh, opportunities for diseases um, because it's a vulnerable. So age-related uh, retinal diseases often link with that oxidization uh, of the retina, of the photoreceptors. So we got antioxidants. Well, that's great. So you heard of antioxidants, Sean, and uh, the one that come up are lutein and zeaxanthin. So you can take antioxidants. Uh, the problem is for antioxidants to be there, they need to bind to receptors. And very unfortunately with age, the number of receptors decreases. It's a natural uh, event that the uh, carotenoids, so these are the antioxidants, receptors binding proteins, go down. And that was shown by Paul Bernstein from the Moran Eye Center in Utah, uh, showed that. So 
yes, you can supplement, but there is a maximum amount, a limited amount that can bind because the receptors are going down. And when you look at the picture of a retina, and I'm sure you've seen a retina before and in photos, uh, Sean, um, it's, it's kind of darker in the middle and it gets browner. And that's because of the presence of these antioxidants um, creating that color, but it gets less brown, less orangey uh, with age. So that is more or less what I had to say uh, about the aging retina. Oh, there's so many, there's so many points I, I want to go with this. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll respond to a couple of things you had mentioned. Wondering if I can still, if I see floaters in my condition. My vision is far enough gone now that I don't really see floaters anymore, but I did used to um, see floaters, so I can certainly uh, relate to to that. Um, I like how you brought up DHA, and it just makes me think of so many things. Um, you know, I, I've read some studies where there is a correlation shown between the amount of uh, macular pigments and uh, progression of, of uh, Alzheimer's disease so uh, or dementia. And I'm just wondering if no, whether or not these carotenoids uh, play key roles in dementias. Um, I, I know there's been some data out there. I actually have seen some data that's currently under review. Um, yep. and then this, in this space, which is pretty interesting. Um, but, um, you know, the other part of that talking about having DHA and how critical that is, yep. um, I'm wondering if, or maybe, you know, and maybe you don't, I don't know if there's any link in the brain as well. And that's maybe why, uh, or one of the reasons why you need DHA and, and brain yep. health. I don't know if there's anything, you know, in that as well. I'm, I am Sean, not aware of the link between the antioxidants and Alzheimer itself. But what I do know is that the changes you see in the brain take place in the retina. So these beta amyloid and these senile plates uh, that accumulate in neurons also happen in the ganglion cells. You will see uh, these beta amyloid increasing. Um, but what, whether um, this is modulated by DHA intake, I, I don't have an answer for that. What I know is that there's recent um, discoveries of a way of detecting Alzheimer because this is an accessible part of the brain, the retina is, and you can image these plaques, senile plaques, these beta amyloid uh, increase. Um, you can image them in the retina as a biomarker of Alzheimer. Yeah, that's that's wild when you think about it, right? Yeah. The, um, now, now, just going on DHA again, um, and this is only my own, my own curiosity, but when we talk about these carotenoids, so lutein, zeaxanthin, and then more recently we talk a little bit about mesozeaxanthin as well, the affinity, I guess, for these uh, or the receptors to yeah. that will bind these in, in the macula, that yeah. uh, is influenced by uh, or can be improved, I guess, that affinity by supplementing with DHA. Is that correct? No, no, um, okay. no I, I, I didn't say that. And, and uh, I don't think uh, DHA does improve uh, the affinity of the uh, okay. CDP. Okay. So they're called carotenoid binding proteins. So carotenoid is because of carrots. So carrots is full of beta carotene, uh, which uh, basically is an antioxidant and a precursor to other um, antioxidants. 
Okay, no, so okay, so thanks for the clarification on that. The yeah. so I guess this leads to to another question. I'm going to jump around a little bit. I you know I had uh, queued up a few questions before before we were talking. I sent you some questions. I'm going to jump around a little bit, but um, the you know we're talking about you know fish oil and and um, you know these macular carotenoids that we can take supplements. Yep. What what are some of the uh, maybe in addition to these, um, what are some of the modifiable factors that you know are, are really within our control to um, maybe when it comes to you know vision loss or yeah. you know preventing slowing that aging process um, yeah. that would naturally occur? Absolutely. So um, what we can not change obviously that's an oxymoron is is aging. So that's the major cause uh, of a lot of uh, conditions like AMD, glaucomas, diabetic retinopathy. Um, but what we, and, and our genetics. So there are genetic predisposition for certain uh, diseases. And, and in your case, it's a monogenic condition that you have. And, and it's one gene that causes it. Uh, in case of AMD, it's many um, mutation called polymorphism. So they're not per se uh, disease causing on their own, but they're predisposition genes. So the genetics and aging, definitely we can't change. But what we can change is stop smoking. So smoking increases oxidation in the back of the eye. So we talked about that being deleterious and uh, increasing with age. So you don't want to add uh, injury, insult to injury by smoking. Uh, exposure to light. So when it's a sunny day, you want to wear sunglasses because that also causes damage at the back of the eye. Um, nutrition. You want to avoid processed food because it contains a very, very low level of, of the ratio of the omega um, three to six. So there's way more omega six than omega three. So the culprits there are soy where you got seven omega-6 for one omega-3 and corn so corn uh, you will find 47 omega-6 for one omega-3 so i challenge you to find processed food that does not have corn derived pro um, products so purifying um, elements from the corn itself is really where the problem is. Eating corn on the cob is fine, but as you have high fructose corn syrup, that really is not a good idea. And corn oil, um, that's not a good idea. So nutrition. Um, now you might be surprised by this one, but this one is well-established and it might be hard to guess, but education. It has been found that with age, um, like AMD, you, you find less uh, AMD and educated people. So we don't know what it is, but education, very, very, very important factor in visual losses that uh, can be modified by the environment. So I can't tell you more, Sean, uh, your guess is as good as mine, but education is important and it's been proven. Um, and finally, using visual aids, um, as, as you might be doing, um, also is a modifiable factor. You can use them uh, like magnifiers, etc. But um, yeah, these are the modifiable factors that I can think of at the moment, John. 
no, and that, that makes that makes um, a lot of sense. The uh, yeah, the education one is, is certainly interesting, and you know, the first thing that comes to mind, which is probably not correct, is um, you know, people who have access to higher education or get higher education maybe end up with ultimately with higher incomes and can afford higher quality food and not always buying processed food. That might be one element of it, but I could be way off in left field on. Nope. No, I'll, I'll, leave that, leave, I'll leave that analysis to, to the researchers. <laughs> it's a good guess. It's, 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 it's just, that's all it is for me. It's just a yeah. guess. I haven't, I haven't read about that. Yeah. I, uh, I concur, Sean. I concur with what you said. Okay. Um, so we talked about changes in, in the retina. And some of these changes, uh, like any other changes in your body with age, are yeah. uh, we can try to slow them down. Some of them are just, that's just the way it's going to be. Um, are there any changes in the brain, I have honestly, I have no clue. Uh, this is just a question that I thought about. But are there any changes that happen in the brain with age? I guess whether those are normal yeah. or pathologic that might uh, affect vision. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so we're talking about the cortex, uh, which is how we generate the reality that we experience. The visual reality uh, is modulated by the retina but is generated. So this is why I said, close your eyes. Oh, I forgot to say you can open your eyes again <laughs> after our journey. But the journey that we took together through the eye uh, was a generation of our brain. So the brain um, areas that are responsible for uh, creating visual scene, there's over 40 of them. And uh, yeah, 40 distinct areas in the brain that are involved in generating the visual scene, the visual experience. And they're not all affected equally. What has been found is that the one involved in movement, motion, detecting movement and motion um, are affected first. So this might explain why with age, um, people tend sometimes to bump into things um, just naturally, just not um grasping the whole the whole scene the peripheral uh vision so movement is detected in the periphery sean can um, i jump in with a question on that just because it's something that comes to mind and i'm probably going to forget it because i'm getting old <laughs> um the uh so so when you're also talking about normal aging and some of the changes in the retina we talk about uh loss of uh rod cells in that mid peripheral area so yeah. do you think it's that connected. it's connected yeah, it's connected. Like maybe the, the loss of the rod cells are leading yeah. to decreased activity in the area of the brain for detecting, you know, uh, motion and spatial I awareness. Asking, I was asking myself that, that same very question, uh, but there are controlled experiments done in monkeys in Oregon where they showed that if you record responses from these cells in the, an area called MT uh, of the brain that is responsible for vision or also called V5. Um, it's, um, you can electrically stimulate that uh, region through, through the retina and uh, you bypass the, um, the problem that might be occurring with rods. Um, you will find that the responses are actually um, more sluggish not finely tuned 
to specific orientation. So the detection, so what the brain likes is bars of different orientation. When you record from the brain, if you want a stimulus, you use bars of different orientation. And um, when you do that, it's just less tuned. So that can be the, the defect in the rods. That has to be the tuning properties of the cortical neurons themselves, which uh, is generating detection of movement. That's a cortical process, Sean, the tuning. So, so that is the brain. Well, that makes, that makes sense. Okay. No, that's, uh, I just was having just a, no, a no, question. No, that no. That, that's absolutely um, fine. The, um, okay. So I thought maybe we could jump into something a little bit, uh, a little bit oblique, I guess, it is talking about um, teaching and mentoring. You seem to, you know, even on the call, before we started recording this call, uh, you and I were chatting and um, the first thing you had mentioned about, you know, you recently retired, but the thing you said you missed the most is teaching. Um, So maybe you can just comment on that a little bit and, you know, why, I guess, why were you so passionate about teaching? Not that it's bad. I'm just curious that not everybody is as, as passionate about the teaching component of, of, uh, of their jobs if they're, um, yeah. If they're a, a researcher. Um, I want to get started. Thank you for that great, um, that great uh, softball. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, try, I try to serve softballs if I can, right? The hardball is coming next though. So just be ready for it. <laughs> I'm, I'm always ready. Um, so I was thinking when I do research um, that, that we don't always find something uh, we spend a lot of time discovering things perhaps that don't seem to be so useful. And I say, what's the point sometime in doing all that we do? And we find little things that we don't find use for it. And I said, it's a culture. It's a culture of inquisitiveness um, and uh, of respect of, of others and collaboration. And um, I think this is preserving that culture. And, and that can be done also, it's a natural extension uh, to do it by teaching. So when you're in class, you really, really promote um, inquisitiveness and curiosity and uh, venturing, um, no venture, no gain. So if, if a student says, how oh, about this, how oh, about that? I encourage the student to really challenge me, to, to challenge concepts, to ask questions, as you very astutely did uh, when you ask about orientation, could it be rod-based as opposed to just, just the cortex? Um, that's what I like, is, is to be challenged and, and together as a group um, to find answers. So that motivates me greatly. And then I like to make jokes. So uh, I have a bit of a stand-up kind of comic um, um, sidekick here. And, and that's what I like in class is to engage students via humor, via different concepts, via uh, everyday example. And uh, yeah, I, I come alive. I come alive. When I'm done with my class, I feel somehow rested, sometime, somehow at peace. Yeah, it really, really energizes me so much, Sean. So how are you going to replace that in retirement? <laughs> There's a question. There's the hardball for you. <laughs> well, uh, the, good, the good thing is, is there's always opportunities 
to still teach classes as a sessional. So you can go and teach the class that you want uh, without anything else. So you can focus on that class. So that's what I will be doing, uh, hopefully, uh, next year or um, in, in, in the second year, but um, sessional. So that's my plan is, is to give classes still. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's not over. There. And then you can also do things like this and sharing your knowledge with a global vision care community uh, via podcast. Yeah, I probably from, from, from the I comfort of home. Very, probably, right? very, very timely opportunity. Yeah, very timely. Yeah, that uh, makes my day, Sean. Uh, great, good. Um, so I want to just maybe touch on one more thing, which is uh, completely different than anything we've talked about. Um, this may be a softball, maybe a hardball. I'm not really sure. Uh, but it's talking about your book. Um, you have published a book recently called Feeling the Meaning of Life. So I just wanted to know yeah. a, a little bit about the, the you know, that's the genesis of that book. Where'd the idea come from? Um, what was it like writing that? Uh, how long did this take, et cetera? I'm, I'm very curious. Yeah, thank you for, yes, absolutely. Yes, well, um, it's coming from a class that I put together in 2008 nine um, with Dr. Karpinski, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but uh, he said, Eve, let's do a class on sensory physiology. And because vision is one of the most important senses in, in his view, and in my view, no pun intended, is, is 50% of the class, so 12 lectures uh, based on vision itself. And as I was giving that, um, the thought came how really, really the emulation of reality is done by the brain, that the brain really generates what we experience. So we can um, experience distorted vision uh, by fooling um, with the brain using um, psychobilin, for example, which is a magic mushroom, um, which is allucinogenic or using LSD, um, that has been proven in a experimental setting to actually change activity of the cortical cells that generate images. So, and people with schizophrenia can see things that are different. So really the brain ultimately decides what you see. And that started everything for me. And I said, how did we get there? How did we arrive to the point that the retina only modulates. Of course, it's super important because it's modulates so we can survive and reproduce. So the evolutionary uh, pressure that led to how we see uh, really interested me. So the book talks about first chapters, how, how we actually see. So it describes the process. And then it goes to evolution. How did we get there? And in a nutshell, I'm going to try to summarize, is that as we evolved from single cells, there was input and output. So input is the senses. So there were very, very primitive eyes and primitive just light detection in a single cell. So a single cell can detect light depending on the type. And it can react by moving a cilia um, in the same direction of the source or away from it, depending on whether it's a threat or whether it's actually a goodie that's going to promote my survival. So it's all about survival and reproduction. But 
We're not talking about reproduction yet because these single cells just can divide themselves. So it's not sexual reproduction. But as we move to more, more cells, so it took billions of years, so much more years from one cell to many cells than the explosion of life, which took 700 million years. So 700 million years to just to, to make all the multicellular animals on, on earth, but it took uh, two point something a billion years to move from one cell to many. So the survival and reproduction uh, to be ensured um, was very complicated when you move from one to, to many, because now what you do is you specialize. So one cell specializes in receiving the stimulus and another cell is specialized in the motor output, okay? Input, output. Now you're gonna make things more complicated. You're gonna interpose cells between and you're gonna develop nervous systems like in the squid, which is very primitive and, and also very, very advanced uh, in terms of nervous system. Anyway, so you get uh, interneurons. So what they do is they make a motor program. They plan the action. And as we evolve humans and other animals with cortexes is that there was no longer a need for the stimulus and the output. The interneurons that create that program became free, free of input and the need for output, which led to rumination, which led to anxiety and depression, which led to the creation of external agents like belief in God, belief in, in extra um, external agents, if, if you see where I'm going with that. And what I want to say is that these interneurons, we don't feel them. We don't feel their activity. We can feel, of course, when we stimulate uh, our senses, we can feel that and our skin, our, our five senses but we don't feel the interneurons firing. And that is a threat. Where's that coming from? It's not comfortable. And there's that region of the cortex called the amygdala, which receives um, stimuli, stimuli and decides whether this is a threat or not. And if decides that it's a threat, it goes to the cortex, but it also receives information, the prefrontal cortex receives information about threat that has nothing to do with, with stimuli, with sensory stimuli. So I'm trying to see the foundation here of, of why we can ask what is the meaning of life? We ask that as a fringe effect, a side effect of developing this premotor program. I know it's, it's very abstract what I'm saying, but I'm trying to have a positive spin so that we don't worry. Um, in conclusion, in, in the book, what I talk about is how do you deal with these false threats, these rumination, this hamster running in the wheel um, and creating scenarios and ruminating on the past is by grounding yourself with sensory stimuli such as mindfulness. So breathing and feeling the air through your nose, that grounds yourself, that sends the information to the brain and whatever the thoughts 
are telling you and revving, um, just become what they are, a pure creation of the brain that has nothing to do with the sensory reality we live in. So that's more or less my book, Sean. Uh, I'm sure you have questions, so fire away. Well, there's questions, comments. Um, so a couple of things come to mind when you're describing that. One is, I remember reading somewhere about one of the uh, explanations, at least for why so many people have a fear of public speaking, is yep. that you know the only time throughout history where somebody would be in an open space with a lot of eyes looking at them would have been, you know, somebody maybe who was hunting gathering and there could have been a a pack of wolves or something looking at them in the dark or whatever it may be. The, all these, you know, dozens or hundreds of eyes looking at them and, and the normal response at that time was fight or flight. So that might be one of the uh, reasons why people have, and, and there's probably, you know, hundreds of these types of examples, right? I guess that's a, that's kind of a vision one. No, no, but, uh, yes, you're right. Yeah. When we think of the first humans, um, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, um, we are 300 to be precise in Chad, they found uh, Homo sapiens there. But what happens then after that is not so much uh, evolution, uh, not so much mutations, not many changes, very, very minor. So you're absolutely right to think of the first humans because that would have decided the evolutionary pressure, the mutations that allowed survival and reproduction. Um, We have to consider what their environment was then and, and how we have so much modified our environment that it doesn't respect it doesn't match with how we've evolved genetically speaking we're misadapted we're never evolved to drive a car we never evolved to give public speech with hundreds of eyes looking at us um we haven't evolved to do that so there might be some misadaptation you know it's funny um I actually really enjoy public speaking. Uh, and I, I also wonder if that's because I can't see my audience, right? There might be, there, well, there might be some truth to that. I mean, yeah, I know there, like I gave a, I gave a speech a couple of years ago as a fundraiser and there's like five or 600 people there. And there's this, you know, black tie event. And, yeah. uh, you know, I just, I, I really enjoyed it. I found it really, really pleasurable and really fun to be on stage and having that conversation, but I, I couldn't see anybody in the crowd. So maybe that has something to, to do with it. But um, I think, I think thing, what, yeah. what has to do with you're a passionate man, uh, Sean, and, and uh, you want to share your passion with others. Uh, this is why you do these podcasts. It's because you want to learn and you want to share your passion. So that's your driving force. And, uh, and I think that, it's that trumps, yeah. that trumps the nervousness. Yeah, I don't know. I, I see this is this is secretly just a uh, this is secretly really selfish, right? I just want to have conversations with people who are a lot smarter than I am, smarter than I am. And they don't want to do the, have those conversations with me unless it's, unless it's like, Oh, Hey, well, there's going to be, you know, thousands of other people listen to it, then it's okay. But um, we no, have just a different want, perspective. I'd yeah. say we just have a different perspective. There, there you go. Not um, smart, one, of the thing, okay. one of the thing you had said was about uh, what I liked. Um, and I've seen this before is the idea of grounding yourself with sensory experiences. So uh, I have a son who um, had a um, some anxiety and attention deficit, um, when he was younger, it still does, but had a lot more anxiety when he was younger. And one of the uh, recommended ways to deal with that was, it was actually through my sister, who is a cognitive psychologist who recommended this, but yeah. it came from, came from somewhere. I think it came from, from practice was, okay, yeah. think of uh, 
you know, uh, focus on three things you can smell, three things you can see, three things you can yep. hear, three things you can taste, three things you can touch, something like that to really ground yourself, yep. right? Yes. I think that's a, yep. a common practice in psychology. Yes. Um, yeah. But yep. um, you stabilize, yep. you, you basically let the thoughts be and, and you're no longer a slave of the thoughts. If that no, makes I, sense. Yeah, no, no, it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's it, sometimes it's easier in, in theory than in practice, especially, you know, we are emotional human beings and, and, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's good to have, have that in the toolkit, but I, 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 I can divulge. I'm personally uh, anxious as a person and, uh, uh, I, I have a hard time sometimes just trying to, to just do mindfulness, you know, it's, it's not coming as, as easily. So just doing sports sometimes helps because when you do sports, you really, really uh, depend on your senses greatly. So that, that can help as well. Oh, that's, that's fair. That's fair. One more question for you. Uh, where can we find your book? Oh, that, that wasn't planned. That wasn't planned. I threw a few more than six at you, but this is not. No, I mean, I mean, people, people are listening to this. People are listening to this. I mean, they have to let them know where they can find. You can't leave them hanging in the wind, and they're going to get bombarded with emails instead. Yeah. So you can find the book at Amazon. Basically, if you look, feeling the meaning of life, uh, it's available on Amazon. Perfect. Perfect. I will. Uh, we'll put some links um, in the. Uh, in the, we always publish a blog article with these podcast episodes. We'll put some links yeah. to that for any, uh, for everybody. So, um, yeah, any uh, for, uh, anybody, anybody who would be uh, a French speaker and listening to this podcast as a French speaker, uh, I translated the book uh, in French called "Ressentir le sens de la vie," which is also available on Amazon. Excellent. Excellent. There you go. So you had to outdo everybody. You have to put it out in two 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 languages right away. Two so, languages. No, that's, yeah, no, yeah, that, yeah. No, that that's great. Well, there'd be one for me and one for my wife. So is it a, is it a? Uh, sorry. It is sciency. It is sciency. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But um, as I write in the beginning and the preface, uh, is that you're allowed to jump sections, and so you can go straight to chapter five, which is really feeling the meaning of life. Um, and uh, you can go to other chapters that talk about ignorance and convenience as the major threat, the two major threats in our society, ignorance and convenience. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Well, we'll have to uh, have to um, check it out and we'll definitely link to that in the, in our show notes. So Dr. Sove, this has uh, been fun. Um, I always enjoy speaking with yeah. you. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, at some point in the in the future, we can meet up and and do this again and do it in person over a coffee. I would love that. Yeah, yeah. Give me a shout if you have an event in person. Uh, I could try to make my way. Uh, where are you based, John? I'm just outside of Montreal, so okay. you're familiar with well, Montreal. There you yeah. Go. I was raised in Montreal, so yeah, it'd be a pleasure to meet you in, in, in the flesh. Yeah. Excellent. All right, Dr. Sobe, thanks so much for, for joining me today. It's truly been a pleasure. Most welcome. I'm very honored to be on your podcast. Take care. Thank you. And that concludes today's episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, ratings and reviews are always welcome. And you can certainly share this episode with any of your colleagues or friends who might enjoy it. Thanks for listening.